0: Good afternoon, um, everyone. My name is Louise McCauley. I'm the Senior Executive Leader of Financial Advisors and I job share this role with Joanna Bird, who um, is, of course, going to co-facilitate this session. So what we're going to talk about is digital advice or robo-advice as it's colloquially known. This is the provision of automated financial product advice using algorithms and technology and without the direct involvement of a human advisor. And the provision of digital advice has grown rapidly in Australia since 2014. Um, There's a number of start-up Australian financial services licensees in the area, and a number of existing AFS licensees are developing digital advice models. We expect this growth to continue, and I think um, your presence here today is testament to the fact that digital advice is on the agenda. ASIC strongly supports the development of a healthy and robust digital advice market in Australia. We think the digital advice has the potential to offer a convenient and low-cost advice service to clients. Today's workshop is timely for us at ASIC because this morning, as part of the extensive work we've been doing in this area, we released a consultation paper and a draft regulatory guide on regulating digital advice. Our draft regulatory guide brings together some of the issues that digital advice providers need to consider when providing digital advice to retail clients in Australia. From the licensing stage, so obtaining the AFS licence or the authorisation, through to the actual provision of advice. I'd like to hand over to Joanna Bird who will introduce our panel um, and then moderate some questions before opening to the floor for questions.
1: Thank you. So we have a panel of four people to discuss robo-advice. So we have June Smith. June is the Lead Ombudsman in Investments and Advice at FOS, the Financial Ombudsman Service Australia. She has a wealth of experience in the financial planning and related sectors. She's well recognised for her work developing the role of codes of practice to improve customer service, along with her efforts in promoting professional standards and business ethics in the financial advice industry. Prior to becoming the lead ombudsman in the investments and advice sector at FOS, June was CEO of the Code Compliance Monitoring Committee for the Code of Banking Practice and General Manager of the Code Compliance and Monitoring Section at Foz. And then next we have Greg Miller from National Australia Bank. Greg has more than 30 years experience in the financial services industry. His roles have provided the foundation of NAB wealth advice business, including the formation of Garvin Financial Planning in 1997, leading MLC's self-employed licensees and more recently the formation of MLC Direct in 2011. Greg has been a long-term member of the Financial Services Council Advice Board. And then next we have Kate Jackson-Maines. Kate is a partner at Kingwood and Mallison's She's a banking and finance partner who specialises in fintech and conduct risk. Kate also has over 15 years experience in advising on financial services laws, including anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing, responsible lending and payments laws. And then finally, we have Chris Brickie, who is the founder and CEO of Stockspot. Chris spent his early career as a portfolio manager at UBS. He created StockSpot in 2013 to help more Australians access expert investment advice. StockSpot was selected in the 50 best fintech innovators globally by KPMG and named Asia's most innovative new fintech business in 2014. So, Chris, as the founder of a startup robo advice business, can you tell us how you first got into the industry? where you see the opportunities and what your experience has been so far.
2: Sure, Um, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me here and it's great to see such a large turnout. I think two or three years ago, the topic of robo-advice, it was difficult to get an audience of one, I think, (laughs) even for a coffee, so I'm glad it's really spread (laughs) now and and become more than just a buzzword, it's something people are genuinely interested in. Um, So my background, as you mentioned in the intro, I was actually a, a fund manager previously, not in the sort of financial advice space. Um, a portfolio manager at a bank and, and my um, inspiration for this business was seeing that there was a great opportunity to use technology to distribute um, good investment advice to more people. So like in other industries um, like travel and, and retail and other industries where um, digital products had uh, really transformed the way people access um, d- yeah, different services. I thought financial services was probably one of the next areas where this was going to take hold and a lot of the traditional Uh, Wealth management and investment services that were available for consumers um, had been created 20 or 30 years ago and and really sort of uh, were needing a bit of a revamp. Um, So I left my job in 2013 to set up this business, which is a digital investment service um, directed mainly at um, the younger professional demographic, but we also have customers of of all age groups. Um, I started the business in 2013. It took a year to actually set up the business, so um, to do that I basically had to read all the legislation um, around financial advice and, and financial products and, and work out the right structure for this particular product. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, um, a lot of the laws are technology agnostic, so fortunately we were able to launch something even though uh, the laws didn't sort of specifically cater for our sort of um, service. Um, but we spent a lot of time working out how we could, yeah, create something that was compliant and also in the best interests of customers. Uh, launched that business in the start of 2014. Um, so it's a yeah, completely digital um, business. Um, clients never have to touch a piece of paper. We, we ID customers online. They go through a risk profiling um, process, which tra- charges their information and works out whether our product is suitable or whether our service is suitable, and then what the right investment strategy is for the client. And then if the clients choose to go ahead, we manage that investment strategy for them. Um, yeah, we've been around now for a year and a half. So it's been quite a fun experience growing a business, um, growing our team of people and really seeing sort of fintech and robo-advice um, take off in Australia. Uh, I think we can learn a lot from what's happened overseas. So I spend a lot of my time with the equivalent businesses to ours in the US and the UK and, and Europe. Um, which were all sort of two to three and a half years ahead of us uh, in terms of not only where the technology is, but also um, the consumer adoption. Um, but we're excited to see over the last you know, six to 12 months um, a lot more uh, consumer willingness to try products like ours and, and to use digital, um, you know, use digital mechanisms to access financial products and financial advice. And, and I think the sort of noise that's getting created in the marketplace around the various sort of fintech sort of co-working spaces and and all of the other interesting stuff going on will only be positive as it will sort of um you know raise awareness with more consumers for for us we're not a b2b sort of product we're not trying to sell our product to to financial organizations we're trying to find customers that want to use our service so for us it's all about building up awareness and trust for customers um so where i guess the regulator comes in like a I think, um, you know, with any area that becomes sort of hot or, or, or popular or a bit of a buzzword, it, it attracts um, good operators, but unfortunately um, low-quality operators as well. So it's important that as, as fintech and, and robo-advice in these areas become um, sort of more synonymous with consumers that um, the right sorts of operators are, are sort of setting up the businesses with the right risk management, the right compliance experience, um, you know, the right sort of systems in order to actually give consumers... Um, the product they're expecting and, and the right sort of service and, and ultimately, um, yeah, do what our goal is, is to, which is to open up advice to more people and to help more uh, more people invest like an expert. So, yeah, to me, technology is very exciting because it opens up um, areas of wealth management and financial services that were um, a lot more exclusive in the past because there were high barriers to accessing them and, and it makes them available to a lot more people and, and um, yeah, I think you guys will have a big job on your hands because there'll be you know, a lot more businesses sort of setting up and looking in, in this area and, and, and global businesses as well as local businesses um, you know, looking to how they can um, launch products um, and, and get traction with consumers and businesses. Um, but ultimately I think it's going to be a great thing for consumers um, for two reasons. It's going to open up access um, and reduce costs which sort of come in hand in hand but then also I think um, hopefully resolve some of the big conflicts of interest in the industry, which I, I think have clearly been a problem over the last, you know, particularly sort of five to ten years, um, and I think technology actually has a, a good um, ability to re- remove and reduce some of these conflicts. So, um, so, yeah, that's where I see sort of the future of, of advice. Thanks, Chris.
1: Um, So next question to Greg. Greg, could you tell us why, as a large market incumbent with an existing traditional financial advice business, NAB has decided to move into robo-advice? And how do you see robo-advice sitting alongside traditional financial planning advice? And also, I suppose, where do you see robo-advice as causing the most disruption to your existing traditional financial advice businesses?
3: Sure, Jack. Um, Yeah, so at, at NAB, we'd certainly been thinking about the fact that we were a large player in the traditional advice business for quite some time and we're very proud of that and what our advisors do. But the numbers across lots of different uh, measures will say, you know, 20% or so of Australians seeking advice. That means 80% aren't seeking advice through the traditional method. Is that the customer's fault or is it the fact that we should be doing more to think about different options? And that's where we came from is how can we think about the customer and if 80% aren't seeking advice through traditional methods, what other ways do we need to bring advice to customers? Clearly, as a large player in the financial services sector, be through a bank and, and our uh, corporate and retail wealth business, we really felt that we could help a lot more Australians if we could be really strong through the whole gamut of advice. Mm-hmm. And so therefore going to some sort of digital advice we saw as really important. And we use the term digital advice, uh, not robo advice. Uh, and the, the subtle differences about that is um, what we've built and been, currently been using is much more about the strategy for people to understand to be informed, educated and guided in their strategy rather than just the investment component. So we've really thought about how do we bring that element to bear uh, because we think a lot of people ask the question about what should I do with my super, what should I do with my insurances, how do I have enough money to save. We recently did a white paper that talked about 46% of Australians living paycheck to paycheck. Those people need cash flow and budgeting advice to do that. They're not always going to go and see an advisor and pay an advisor for that. If we can do that digitally that's a fantastic help. So with those sorts of things, we decided that we need to do it as an adjunct. Now, we think that those things can live very nicely together. Uh, in our business, we offer digital advice, we offer phone advice, we offer face-to-face, the traditional advice. For us, it's not a lead generation mechanism. It's allowing the customer to move through the system to use what's most appropriate for them. Some will use one of only channels. Some will use a combination of two or three. We think that's the way it will grow in the future where where customers might move across different channels, use different advice mechanisms to suit themselves. I don't think that'll be just around age or account balances because we see that today, different account balances, different ages use different tools. So we can see that evolving. So, so, so we think that all work together because we need to offer that because that's our customer base, right? We're a large customer base and reflects the broad Australia. In terms of disruption, I think the customer will lead the disruption of this. The customer will demand more from all financial services organisations they will demand more in terms of knowing them, providing more personal solutions to them. So therefore, they're going to drive all financial services organisations to change and disrupt. So I don't think it's a disruptive um, new technology necessarily. It's more about customer behaviour and what they're going to demand that's going to change us. So therefore, you know, what we're doing in digital uh, advice is here to stay and it's going to grow. It's going to be bigger because I think customers are going to want it.
1: Do, what sort of sector of your existing face-to-face clients do you see moving to the sort of digital advice world and sort of staying there? Well,
3: it could be, it could be any. I, I think what, what is important to understand is what are the different roles those channels might play with customers in the future. And so you can think about uh, those customers with really critical and complex needs that might want face-to-face professional advice on a regular basis, and, and I think that will still hold. Some, some of those people, once they get their situation sorted, might be happy to monitor in their own activities as time goes on. Others with simpler needs may want to start with you know, somebody face-to-face, just sorting it out. It's a bit of a mess, not quite sure what to do next. Places I like came to financial planning was having my list of bills on the fridge and when I had to pay them. So you know, the fact I've got to think about these other things is pretty large. So, so I think some of those people, once established and they, they know a roadmap, they might be able to follow it for themselves for quite some time. So so that's why I don't think it's uh, it's more about the individual and their circumstances and how they see the help they need, that information, that education, that advice, rather than is it demographic or account balance and so on. Some of those things could trend themselves together because I think if you've got a... You know, going into retirement, it's a major personal decision. You may want to test that with somebody else. But I think that's going to come down to the individual making their own decisions about their own circumstances. And I think we'll get lots of different results and it'll be surprising who we see. We know that today. We have a lot of people using our digital advice tool who are 25 and we have a lot of people using it who are 55. So I don't think it's it's not like it's 80% used by 25 year olds and hardly at all we see even usage across the spectrum.
1: Thanks Greg. So Kate, um, you act on behalf of a number of robo-advice businesses. What do you think is the most common area your clients have sought advice on? What are the issues that they're coming to you about?
4: So they all usually start with the same question, which is, please tell me there's an exemption that can get me out of the law. <laughs> um, and usually when we work through it, and we work through all the exemptions, um, sometimes some clients, some of my clients have been able to rely on the generic calculator exemption, but usually we get to the point where the generic calculator exemption doesn't work for them because they want to recommend a particular product or end up in a particular product. So then we're in the land of is it general advice or is it personal advice? And quite commonly get asked the question, with if if I just put a big disclaimer all over my website saying it's just general advice, does that mean it's general advice? Um, and so unfortunately the answer to that is usually no. Um, so it's, it's about um, working out are you general advice or are you personal advice and then trying to use some of the examples that are in the Regulatory Guide 244 which talk about how you can, by framing your customers' um, expectations, put, give general advice using personal information about somebody, trying to translate that into a digital context to help people either fall into the general advice when they're really giving general advice or personal advice when they're giving personal advice. If we get to the point where it's a personal advice model, often the question in the digital um, advice context is, well, do I need to have a human review every single statement of advice that's generated to make sure the advice is appropriate? Um, And we've worked with ASIC um, and the Innovation Hub to find the answer is no, thankfully. Not, not every single statement of advice needs to be reviewed by a,
1: um, a human in order for it to meet the appropriate advice test. Now, June, um, robo-advice is still in its early days, and I, I assume that FOS has yet to see any systemic risks or issues arise in the robo-advice industry. However, could you share with us what FOS's likely approach to robo-advice will be in the future?
5: Yeah, thanks, Jo. Um, Interestingly, we've got about 14,000 members at FOS, and many of them will indeed probably go into robo-advice, and we're looking forward to engaging with those new start-up businesses who will need to join an EDR scheme as well. And we will intersect in a range of ways that may surprise you. One of, obviously will be in the resolution of individual disputes with consumers against uh, those who are providing this type of service, but we also work with our FOS members on systemic issues and reporting to the regulator as well, the remediation of those, and have participated with our members on remediation programs that they have set in place now where there has been systemic issues in relation to conduct. So 10,000 individual disputes in the last six months, so we will have intersection there, but in particular I think we'll have intersection with how we identify errors and non-compliance and then remediate them proactively to ensure consumers are protected going forward. And whilst the dust settles on what the law is and whether or not uh, these types of services will constitute personal, general, no advice, execution only or otherwise, I thought it might help you today to have my personal reflection on what FOS approach might be when we look at our test of fairness in all the circumstances. FOS will clearly take into account the law, it will clearly take into account any industry benchmarks that are set for conduct and provision of services in this area. We'll certainly be guided by regulatory um, guides as well, but we'll definitely look at fairness in all the circumstances too. And in that sense, I'll walk you through three. The lens for any business, whatever the service it provides will be. Um, We'll we'll be wanting to see that there's fair service provision, that there's fair conduct and dealings, and that there's fair treatment. They're the three aspects. And if I just step you really quickly through them. If we looked at one of the common risks that we think we're likely to see in terms of robo-advice disputes, it'll be clarity of service provision. So it may not be the types of businesses you're likely to hear about today in terms of the colleagues that I have to my left, but definitely with others, you're very welcome, (laughs) but definitely with others we think there will be something about how the relationship is scoped up front with the client and how the client's expectations are managed in and around that. So there's something about the terms and conditions, the terms of engagement, uh, the contractual nature of the relationship, and I use that word deliberately. Um, We're going to hear a lot about how there is no human element to robo-advice. I think if the customer is at the centre of every business model in the financial services industry, it should be, we've got a human. Um, It'll be all about relationships. So understanding managing expectations and clarity of service provision up front will be one that will look at fair service. Fair conduct and dealings. Really interested to understand from industry how their warnings and filtering through some type of triage process will work, and we think that is incredibly important. Um, in a world where not every consumer uh, who uses these services will be financially literate, it is important, I think. That again, with promises made and promises kept, a business is actually articulating to a client as they go through the journey, um, actually this may not be for you. This may not, be, it may not be that we can give you tax advice, it may not be that we can give you advice in relation to superannuation concessions, etc. So I do think they're important and we'll be looking at those. And lastly, fair treatment. I think a culture of a business um, is fundamentally based on how it treats and engages and relates to its clients. And in that sense, how it handles disputes and concerns raised about its business. There's just as much about its culture as anything else. And so in terms of fair treatment, we'd be looking to understand, particularly in systemic issues, just how are the internal dispute resolution frameworks of these businesses working? How accessible are they? Can consumers raise their concerns and have them addressed? And then going forward, Are we engaged in proactive remediation and compensation for those clients as well? So they're the kinds of things, fair service, fair conduct and dealings and fair treatment, that we're probably likely to look at irrespective of the business model before us.
1: Next question, we might start with Chris and work our way down that way. ASIC has made a lot of comments recently about the importance of culture within financial services organisations. So what is good culture in the context of robo-advice where there may be little or no human involvement, although, as June's just reminded us, there clearly is a human the client, will and truly smack bang in the middle of the thing. So, Chris, would you like to start first about what culture good culture means in a robo-advice business?
2: Yeah, sure. Oh, first of all, on the human side of things, so there's probably some clients out there that do or are providing advice without any human oversight. We have taken a, a slightly different or quite a different approach in that we do... Um, manually sort of look at every um, client that comes through our pipe. So there is a human oversight to every client that signs up and, and is checked over by several people within within the organisation. So we don't believe that we're at the point that, um, you know, we have you know, 100% confidence that, you know, there aren't op- opportunities for people to get through where they shouldn't have got through, which is why we think human oversight at this stage of, you know, where this this sort of uh, service is at in the marketplace is still important. Um from a yeah from a compliance and risk management point of view, but also um, more than anything, which it all comes down to, is to make sure that uh, we're only offering a service or advice to clients where it's suitable and in their best interest. So, you know, we're very careful to make sure that whenever we're uh, recommending something to a client, that we um, yeah we're very confident that it's the best product for them. Um, so, from on your question about um, culture, uh, coming from I come from a, a trading floor background and. and Um, risk management and compliance culture is uh, of utmost importance when you're on a trading floor dealing with a lot of money so it's something that's been ingrained in in me since I was very young and something I try and share with the rest of our team when it comes to um, you know making sure there's all the right um, checks and double check checks and triple checks of all the systems and all of the processes to make sure what we're offering is suitable for each client so uh, it just comes down to and, and it's it's different for our sort of business versus other organisations. We've been able to build all of our risk management and compliance systems from the ground up. So, you know, we have uh, process manuals that we've had to build because we, we've created these processes. And, and it's just about um, testing them, I suppose, and testing them under different scenarios and stress testing them to make sure that, um, you know, under all of the different potential scenarios, you're still ultimately providing the right, um, the right advice to the client.
4: I don't see it as being all that much different to a traditional human financial planning network. Um, it's about tone from the top, so it's about um, you know the CEO setting a good compliance culture. Um, it's about monitoring and supervision, so you know where you might have in place a monitoring and supervision plan for monitoring all of your human financial planners. It's about monitoring the algorithm and monitoring um, what that algorithm is generating in terms of advice and making sure it's appropriate.
3: So I, I agree with Kate that it's, it's a, you know, absolutely a top-down thing in the culture in the organisation. It's about you know, doing the right thing, respect for people, looking after the customer and making sure the customer is the, is the centre of what you're doing in the process. I think the, So that's right in terms of the broad culture. When you're getting down to what are you doing through um, digital advice tools, I think the other part of the culture that's really important is understanding what customer you're trying to serve about what sort of problem and making sure you stick to that really strongly and not let yourself wander into a whole range of other areas. Um, so be really, really in understanding what it is you're good at and what you can do and what it is you can't do and have other mechanisms for those other clients that don't fit. Test yourself against those and test what you're doing in terms of whether it be your algorithms and your assumptions that you're putting into place, are they really fit for purpose for that customer that you're trying to look after. And I think if you check those on a constant basis then you'll end up with the right culture to deliver for the customer.
5: June, was there something else you'd like to add? Yeah, look, I think we got a fantastic test today about the types of questions that a startup might ask itself, and so I think we're talking about two things. One is the culture of the business um, within the startups in particular, but also the graph to the tree, if we remember the concepts from this morning, and then the industry per se. Not often you get on the ground floor where you can actually build a culture within an industry as well, and uh, here's a plug for a code of practice um, and some discussions <laughs> as well in and around that. But if you're asking questions like, well, what's the business I'm in, what's the reputation that I want to have, how do I want to engage with my customers, then um, I'll go back to what I said before. It is about fair dealing, service and treatment, but I'd also talk about making sure that trust is at the heart of everything you do. And if you want some lenses for making decisions in that context, transparency has got to be key, I think, not just in terms of service precision and the way in which you... Um, represent to your clients what the service is but also in relation to the uh, conflicts of interest how they'll be managed reward and remuneration structures as well because you do get the behavior you reward and incentivize promises made and promises kept integrity has got to be up there I would have thought as well as responsibility and accountability I was at the international garden show yesterday in Melbourne and there was a sign and it was a cat sitting with a vase broken and flowers everywhere, and it said the dog did it.
0: (laughs) Having
5: um, developed three algorithms during a PhD, let me assure you, the first person who tells me it was the algorithm's fault (laughs) is not going to get a very pleasant hearing. Um, Responsibilities and accountabilities, again, that has to be transparent and there needs to be effective checks and balances in place. And if something goes wrong, fix it. Remedy it And compensate consumers if they suffer loss as a result.
1: Thank you very much. Okay, my
5: last question for everyone is um,
1: as Louise has already said, we're currently consulting on a Um, a draft regulatory guide on robo-advice and I wanted to know whether any of you had any comments you'd like to share with the audience about that consultation paper and the draft regulatory guide. I think it's interesting, if we
4: live in a world where the ultimate goal is to get from wanting something to delivering it as quickly as possible, um, you can see a world where cognitive technologies might interact with robo-advice. So instead of actually asking someone questions about their objectives and their situation and their needs, Using cognitive technologies to just pull that from lots of different data sources, so that it's as simple as going onto the tool, clicking, yes, that's about, that's correct about me, that's my objectives, that's my financial situation, that's my needs, and then getting the advice delivered that quickly. Um, so it'd be interesting to know in, in the red guide whether or not um, the, how the best interests safe harbour works in that situation, because in order to rely on the safe harbour, you have to get instructions from your client about that. And so, could you use t- cognitive technologies? Um, or even there's some gamification tools that gamify um, working out your your risk appetite, so instead of actually asking questions directly, you play a game, and from that game it tells you something about risk appetite. So can you use those kinds of new technologies together with um, digital advice tools and still rely the best interest safe other
3: so joe I, I think uh We'll definitely be putting in submission by May 16th. Excellent. By the way, so we'll be doing that. So we're on record now, Andrew, to do that. Um, the uh, but but that's because this is important to us. So we yeah. definitely want to be play a part in, in industry thinking around this, uh, and we're obviously going to do some thinking about some of the components. I, I think that there are some elements of clearly uh, good intent in um, the guide around, um, you know, monitoring and doing the right thing in our know, algorithms and and, and uh, checking and responsible managers, so the detail of that we need to think through, but I think in general there's some themes coming through there that seem quite sensible. I'm a a little in Kate's camp of um, what's going to challenge us over time, because we often think around the fact that, uh, by and large, it seems that our personal advice regulation has grown up in a face-to-face space, and whilst, uh, as Chris said, we've, uh, we've all managed to exist in that regulation to put that in place today where we're going to go in the future with you know future technologies and what customers are going to ask of us uh is that going to fit and i think that's going to challenge um not just the regulator it's going to challenge the industry as well to actually do this so i think that's and 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 lawyers of course um so so i think that's going to be just interesting for us to to think about technology personal advice and and, uh, how that what sort of how that plays out in the future
1: Chris, you said it took a year to read through the regulation, et cetera, before you started. <laughs> so your first observation might be it might be a bit late. <laughs> now that you've got, but do you have any other comments?
2: Oh, I found it was quite interesting. <laughs> 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 um, I think, I mean, following up on that, I think the, the great thing about technology is that it reduces the barriers for people to use services, and that's fantastic, and that it opens up services, as we've talked about earlier, but also... Um, it it means it's even more important to make it clear to consumers what they're getting and what they're not getting. And so, you know, where if you went to see a financial advisor or a planner face-to-face, it it is quite clear through the first couple of meetings what you're getting, what you're not getting, what you're signing up for. Um, It is possible through, you know, digital channels for that to become, you know, confusing or hazy for consumers. So I think it's important, and and I think the Red Guide will, um, you know, sort of touched on it, and, and there'll be more detail on it, that, um, whatever um, service is provided to the consumer especially where it's a scoped service and isn't sort of providing holistic financial advice that it's very clear to the customer in, in what they're getting and what they're not getting and, and what's being considered and, and what's not being considered um, just so consumers in the end you know not know what they're signing up for know what they're paying for and, and know um, you know if they want other advice in other areas that they'll need to get it in those other areas um, so for, for me that's probably one area that from a, also a consumer protection point of view is quite important. It's just that consumers always um, know what they're signing up for and, and, and know what they're getting because that's that's fair for them. And and then, I mean, I think it will be interesting over time, um, yeah, the, the interaction between um, product providers and advice providers in a digital world. So I, I kind of am quite interested to see sort of what direction that heads in Um, given the issues uh, that exist in the industry, especially in in this country, but to a lesser extent in other countries as well, around conflicted advice, where product manufacturers also own advice providers and they have an inherent bias towards those products. Um, For me, um, setting up this business was about helping consumers access what I think is the best advice and right products for them, Um, but with great sort of power that technology brings, it also brings a responsibility to make sure you are providing the right advice and there is the opportunity to use technology to um, continue the bad habits that we've been in for the last 10 or 20 years. So um, I hope technology and the regulation that comes around it will help to steer consumers in the right direction and away from a lot of these conflicts in the industry.
5: Thanks Chris. June. Yeah I think the consultation paper was a fantastic initiative because it allows us to have conversations like this about where the touch points might be. And the two that I'll bring to your attention, one of which I'll be particularly interested to look at, is the record-keeping. And I think the record-keeping obligations will be a litmus test for those tensions between uh, the cost of compliance and uh, and doing business as well. But, of course, in at the Ombudsman Service, selfishly speaking, um, contemporaneous evidence is always um, useful. And so um, electronic transaction and other data we're used to having as well. So... I think they are obligations that industry should be looking for, it's just one of those tensions. And the other one is adequate compensation arrangements. The consultation paper um, rightly raises that. I think that's a a very valid point. And there will be tensions in and around single claims issues that you might want to look at. Um, An example in our systemic issues is we would normally, if it goes wrong and there's an algorithm or a system involved, Many customers are impacted, and even though the individual loss might be small, um, cumulatively, it's a lot of money. Um, So one I can tell you about, last year we handled, I think it was 6,545 customers. Um, Individually, not a lot of loss, but overall $2,225,000 in compensation paid back. A, a professional indemnity insurance um, policy may not cover that if it's a single claim, for example, you might want to look at that. And also MDAs, so discretionary accounts, if they're part of the service provision, they may be an exclusion from the policy too. So great time for industry to talk to the insurance industry about how um, compensation arrangements will be um put forward and also where the gaps might be because consumer protection is fundamental as we all know.